together once again to the book of Genesis. This week, we begin chapter 4. We'll be looking at the first 16 verses of this wonderful foundational book. Before we read God's Word, let's ask for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Dear Lord, open our eyes that we might see Jesus in Your Word. Dear Lord, open our hearts that Your Word might take deep root in us. Dear Lord, open our minds that we might mark, learn, and inwardly digest the truth of Your Word. This we ask in Christ's name. Amen. And now Genesis chapter 4. This is the Word of God that is completely without error, that is completely sufficient, and that is completely authoritative over our lives. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. How do we fix 
what is wrong in the world today. You see, throughout history, man has seen that there is something wrong with the world. There are murders and thefts and lies and destruction. And throughout history, man has come up with various solutions for this as to what is wrong with the world. For some, it is that things need to be changed. We need to do things differently. We need to set a new course, and that will fix things. And of course, that has been tried and found wanting. So others reply, no, what we need is less change. We need more stability. We need things to stay the same that they always are. And of course, that has been tried many times. And still the world is as it is. There are others who say, well, we we just need to teach people more. If just people had a better education, if they understood more, and sometimes it's understanding more about philosophy or about science or about technology. But education has been tried and found wanting. Others say, well, you know the solution is we just need to give people more free things. If people got things for free, then they wouldn't be concerned about goods. And then they would be happy. And that has been tried with disastrous results. And finally, others reply, what we don't need are free things. We just need freedom. And if we only have freedom, if no one can ever tell us what to do ever, if we have no laws, if we have no governments, no restrictions, then things will be fine. And the problem with all of this is that it misses the main problem with the world. The problem with the world is not a lack of stuff. It's not a lack of freedom. It's not a lack of knowledge. It's not a lack of change. The problem with the world is a lack of trust in the living God. The problem with the world is unbelief. And until that is fixed, the state of the world will continue. We see that here this morning. In the story of Cain and Abel, two brothers, identical genetically, an identical environment, the perfect environment, or at least as good as it could possibly be in the fall. There had not even yet been death. And we see what happens when unbelief rears its ugly head. We see first and foremost that unbelief brings sin. Unbelief brings sin and continued sin into the world. But unbelief doesn't just bring sin. We see, secondly, that unbelief extends sin. It makes it worse. It begins a downward spiral that man cannot come out of. Unbelief brings sin and it extends sin. But thirdly, we see here in this story that unbelief actually nourishes sin. The story of Cain is a shocking lack of faith. An unbelief taken to its logical consequences. And this story has a benefit for us this morning as we see what is required of us by our Lord and what is necessary for a life of peace and productivity. Well, let's begin then by looking at how unbelief brings sin 
into families and into the world. Chapter 1 begins that Adam and Eve have the first baby shower and child. Now, you can imagine here, if you think having a child in a hospital or with a midwife is scary, imagine when it's just your husband that's there to help you. There is no doctor. But you see here, this is the natural consequence of life. This is that creation mandate that was given to be fruitful and multiply. And Eve bears a son. And we wonder how Eve will react. We know that Adam reacted in faith when he said his wife would be called Eve, the mother of all the living. And now they have been cast out of Eden. This great loss is before them. How will Eve react to the promise of God? You could just imagine what would happen as they found out that Eve was with child. Eight months to go. Seven months. Six months. The very first child. Five months. Four. Two. Here he is. And Eve looks at this long-awaited child and she says, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Now there's a bit of a Hebrew play on words here. The, the Hebrew word for I have produced or I have gotten or I have created sounds almost exactly like Cain. She has gotten a man with the help of the Lord from the Lord. She looks at this child, and I can't help but think that she has in her mind the promise of Genesis 3.15. She wonders to herself, is this the seed? Is this the chosen one? Is this the one that God said would bring salvation? Well, we can't always be right. But she had high hopes at the beginning. And then she conceives again and bears a second son. And you can almost imagine, as she was thinking on the great hope of the promise, now she begins to think on the great sadness of their situation. And she names their second son Abel. Which, roughly translated, means... Breath. Vapor. Fleeting. And you can imagine, she's seen the promise, but she knows the misery of sin. And so, here she has these two children. Hope in the midst of misery. Redemption in the midst of sin. Eve is full of hope. God had said that He would provide a conflict. That He would bring enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And Adam and Eve did not know how true and how soon That would be. That is the setting here. Two sons. Brothers. And then we have the sacrifices that come from this. Moses tells us in verse 3 that in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Now God had established a sacrificial system. We might also translate in the course of time as At the end of days. Or at the appointed time. You know how like when you're about to go on vacation and you circle that date on your calendar and as you mark it, you X the days off. And at the end of those days, yes, vacation. 
This is in the beginning how worship was. It was a day you circled on your calendar and you could not wait for. And when it arrived, you celebrated and worshipped. And the sacrifices were brought forward. So God had appointed a time. I think we can assume God had appointed a place. And God had instructed Adam. And either Adam had instructed or God had instructed them directly about what was to be brought. And these sacrifices are described very differently. You see, Cain's sacrifice is merely mentioned. Cain brought an offering, an offering of the fruit of the ground. It is as if Cain is just discharging a duty. Some of you are here this morning doing that. You're only here because your parents made you, or your wife made you. Or your husband made you. Or your children made you. You're hoping to discharge a duty and to get through the day and get on with life. That's the way of Cain. It's the way of destruction. It's a, a token. It's a mere discharge of an obligation. But Abel's sacrifice is described in a very different way. Abel brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now, it's much more descriptive. The firstborn is, of course, more significant. It acknowledges that God is the author of life. It is the very best, the first and choice fruits. You have heard me describe this kind of giving to you in other ways. You see, oftentimes when we give to the Salvation Army or to some charity, we go into our closet and we find the suit with the hole in the elbow or the pants that are too short or the shirt with the stain on it. And we say, well, we can't really use this anymore. Somebody could use it. We'll give that away. How many of you go into your closet and take out a brand new suit and give it to someone or brand new pants? You see, this is what Abel does. He takes the very best that he has, and it's very descriptive. It's either that he brings the firstborn of the flock and fat portions, or I think even more so, it's descriptive. The very firstborn and the very choice parts of the firstborn. The fat. Now that's what will smell the best in the sacrificial fire. It's what will fire up the best. It's what's the best, right? One of the things that I love about my wife's cooking is her apple pie. Because she's old school. She doesn't cook with margarine. She doesn't make the pie with butter. She makes it with Crisco. Not good for you. But anytime you have an opportunity, you know there's pie at my house. Come on down. Because the fat is the choice part. It's why the national food of men is bacon. You see, it's the best part. Now, do you see the difference here? This is Cain. Well, I guess I'll throw some grain on that. And Abel says, I'm going to pick the best part of the best thing, and I'm going to bring it here, and I'm going to offer it up to God. So what's the difference between these sacrifices? Now, they're made of different things. And we might look into the fact that Abel's sacrifice requires blood. But that's not mentioned here. 
But what we do know is that there is an attitude behind these sacrifices. That Cain is just simply trying to get it out of the way. It's tokenism. He probably didn't bring what God wanted, either the right thing or certainly not the choicest. It didn't really cost him anything. He didn't take of his first fruits. And he brought it, we'll see in just a moment, in a very arrogant way. I guess I'll give this to God. I hope you're happy with it. Whereas Abel had heartfelt worship. We know this by inspiration. Because you see, Hebrews tells us in chapter 11 that it was by faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. You see, the difference was not primarily in the stuff. The difference was in the heart. The stuff merely just revealed what was in the heart. And you see, what happened here was Cain and Abel, brothers who were like very different in their offerings because they were very different in their hearts. Cain's unbelief brought sin in this sacrifice. But you see, unbelief is like a disease. When untreated, it continues to spread. And so this unbelief not only brought sin, it began to extend sin. Because you see, the Lord had regard to Abel's offering, but not to Cain's, for the reasons that we've just said. Cain didn't like this very much. He was arrogant. He was angry. And his face fell. Now, to give you an idea of the linguistic complexity of the Hebrew language here. It's like this. It's like the way your children get when they're mad at you and they want you to know they're mad at you. They furrow their brow. Their lips go down. Their eyes droop. All the parts of Cain's face just fell. Moms know the look in an instant. How many of you mothers have looked at your children and said, you wipe that look off your face right now, mister? He doesn't even have to say anything and you know what's in the heart. And God knows this. Because he responds, he says, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? Now, this is not the first time that God has done this. You remember in the garden, He said to Adam, Where are you? Again, how do you know that you are naked? You see, God is continually seeking out sinners. This is the way of God from the beginning of history. He's seeking Cain out. He would have every right to wipe Cain off the face of the earth for having sinned against him, for his arrogance, and then for being angry with the judgment of the Lord. But instead, he approaches Cain. He wants to know what is going on here. And Cain shows his in his actions. You see, it might have been that Cain was a early historical Eddie Haskell. He might have walked around Adam and Eve with a with a good look on his face and with kind words coming out of his mouth insincerely. But when push came to shove, when 
It was down to brass tacks. Cain could not hide what was in his heart. Maybe you think here this morning you can hide what's in your heart. The disdain you have for your spouse. The anger you have with your children. The disobedience you have for your parents. Your hatred for God. But you can't. God sees all things. And you see, eventually, all things come out because out of the heart the mouth speaks. And the answer here is not to reform your speech or to walk around with a painted smile. The answer here is your heart must be right with God. You cannot be cursed with unbelief or you will be like Cain. You will be miserable. And instead of seeing a gracious opportunity as God intervenes, you will see meddling and annoyance. You see, God comes after Cain. What grace He shows to him. He shows that He sees Cain regardless of who he is. You can't get worse than Cain at this moment. It's fair to say that no one in the history of the world has committed as egregious a sin as Cain. Adam and Eve disobeyed. But they didn't turn and respond with sarcasm to God. Cain here has shown how far sin takes you. And God intervenes and He says, you know, sin is crouching at your door. He describes it almost like it's an animal ready to attack. He wants it to be vivid. You didn't know God was a preacher. He is. He gives a wonderful illustration here. And he says, you must master this sin. Because if you don't, it will be disastrous. Now the language that God uses in verse 7, its desire is for you and you must rule over it, should sound familiar. Because it's exactly what he said in Genesis 3.16 to Eve. He said, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. So what he's doing is God is reminding Cain of how good not that turned out. He's giving him a second chance here. He's reminding him. He's warning him. But you see, Cain doesn't trust God. Cain doesn't believe in God. Now, that sounds silly because God is speaking to him. And we think the reason people don't believe in God is because they don't part. And the sun doesn't stand still. But that's not why people don't believe in God. People don't believe in God because they don't want to. They wish he did not exist. And they wish him away. That's what Cain is doing here. He has no faith in God, no belief in God, no trust. And so he makes absolutely no effort to fix the situation. Can you imagine? God has said, you brought the wrong offering. It is not what I wanted. Your heart is not right. I'm warning you. You could do the right thing. If you do, if you do, won't you be accepted? And the language here again is very vivid. We might also translate, won't you be accepted as, won't you be lifted up in your face? Won't you go from a frown to a smile? 
Won't your whole attitude, your whole positioning of heart change simply by trusting in me? You see, God shows Cain who his real adversary is. It's not Abel. It's not the Lord. Cain's real adversary is sin. Your sin is a real enemy that will attack you. And unless you are prepared, and unless you trust the Lord, will defeat you. Sin is a trap. It, it encoils us. It drags us down. James puts it this way. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. So sin first entices us. And then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That is always the way of unbelief and sin. Enticement, sin, death. It's a chain. Sin, Paul says, seizes an opportunity and produces in us all kinds of covetousness. This is what Cain is experiencing. He begins then also to escalate. Rather than fix the situation, rather than listen to the Lord, there's actually an escalation in sin and in wickedness. His unbelief extends his sin. He ignores God's warning, his exhortation to do well, and instead he begins to escalate into evil. Cain makes it clear he does not want mastery over sin. Now think of this. Cain's sin was not out of his control. It's not a hurricane that came in. He's not a victim of the powers that be or the government. It's just him. It's actually his problem is solely within him. Would that we understood this more. Do you know what most of your problems are? You. Most of my problems are me. It's not society. It's not the papers. It's not the government. It's not my neighborhood. It's me. It's the sin that rages in me. That wants me to be God. Me to be in control. Me to get what I want. That's good news. Because if your problems were a tornado, good luck fixing that. If your problems were the circumstances of the world, how can you possibly approach that? Are you going to change the attitudes of a billion people? But if your problems are you, then there's a solution. There's a solution for my unbelief. There's a solution for my lack of faith. It's found in Jesus Christ. If sin crouches at my door, by faith I can trust in the Lord and I can have mastery over it. But you see, Cain says, I'll have none of that. He was told what to do and he rejected it. 
And he begins to then escalate into more and more evil because you see now Satan sees that he has a pawn, a tool, a dupe. Satan heard that prophecy too about the two seeds and he knew he was on the losing end of the two seeds and he wants to try right now to destroy the prophecy. And so you can almost imagine him whispering in the ear of Cain. What an ungrateful God. He should treat you so much better. You're so much better than that. You're the firstborn. You're the smartest. Anybody else grow like you? No, I don't think so. You're the best farmer in the world, aren't you? Of course you are. God should appreciate that, shouldn't he? Of course he should. Is God doing any farming? No, you're doing the farming for God. What about that Abel? He thinks he's so smart, thinks he's got it all together. Yeah, sure, right. He's probably just doing it just to show you up. He probably talked to God in private. He's building Cain's hatred up, nurturing his sin, nurturing his distance from God. Have you ever experienced that? You get angry at someone, and as time goes on, instead of it going away, you get angrier. And then there comes a point where you can't let go of your anger because you'd lose face. You've got to stay angry. You've got to show them. That's how Satan works. He nourishes this kind of unbelief and hatred and sin, and he uses it to prod us on to more and more evil. And that's what happens with Cain. He can't stop sinning. First, he's indifferent in worship. Then he's angry at God. And then he is staring at his brother with a knife and blood and death. He didn't have a bad example to follow. He didn't lack a role model. He wasn't pushed to it by the culture. It all just came out of his heart. He was angry. He couldn't stop. The very first death in the world was a murder. Think about that. That's who we are outside of faith in Christ. The very first thing we would do is murder. If you don't think so, examine your own heart carefully. And think to yourself what you would do if they invented... A law-free vaporizing ray. And someone cut you off in traffic and yelled at you. Poof. Or someone mocked you at the driver's license agency. Poof. You see, it's in our heart. Just because it doesn't show up in our hands does not mean it's not in our hearts. The only solution to this, to getting out of this downward spiral, is to get off the way of Cain. To reject it, to by faith follow Abel, the seed of the woman. The true seed of the woman found in Jesus Christ. Sin wants its mastery over you, and you must fight it. You must battle it. It will look different for different people. Men, it will show up more often than not in what you watch. You must fight it. Women, more often than not, it will show up in what you say. You must fight it. 
children, more often than not, it will show up in what you want. Well, if I only had, it's not fair that I didn't get. You must fight it. In Jesus Christ, whether you are two or a hundred and two, you are a warrior whose job is killing sin. Because you see, if we don't kill sin, we see the final thing that happens to Cain. Sin not only, or unbelief not only brings sin, and it not only extends sin out, but it also nourishes sin. We begin to desire it, to love it, to somehow perversely think it's right for us to do these things. This is what we see here in verse 9 and following. The Lord comes to Cain yet a second time with another question. Where is Abel your brother? Now he knows exactly where Abel is. This is like the parent of one child. You know, the parent of one child in very many ways has an easy life. If something is broken, you automatically know who did it. If there's arguing going on in the house, you've got more problems than just the child. But sometimes you ask those questions, even if there's only one child at home, you say, who did this? Not because you need the information, not because you've got a notebook and you're investigating, it's because you want to give your child an opportunity to confess and be right. Isn't that right? That's what God's doing here with Cain. He's coming at him again. He already knows the answer to the question. He's seeking a confession from Cain and his restoration. And the hardness of an unrepentant heart shows up. I have no idea. Liar. What am I? My brother's keeper? In my sanctified imagination, I, I think Cain said it like that. I've got kids. I've been a kid. This is how you answer. And you see, this is how unrepentant hearts act. Unbelief acts when confronted by sin. It's the kind of thing that you see in the news when an Egyptian church burns to the ground and the hard-hearted, unrepentant authorities come and rather than do anything about the perpetrators... They cite the church for a building code violation. True story. Because you see, again, the problem is with the heart here. The heart of Cain is speaking, again, a lie, an insult, sarcasm. Now, you you have to appreciate how horrible this sin is. It's in the middle of the context of worship. It's the first murder, and it's his brother. Look back at the beginning of chapter 4 and see how many times the word brother is used. It's used six times in just three verses in the heart of this passage. But I want you to notice something else. It's never used of Cain. It's used to refer to Abel. Because you see, Cain doesn't want that brotherhood. He doesn't want that relationship. He doesn't want a relationship with God. He's only concerned about himself. This is the way of Cain. 
John tells us in 1 John that he murdered his brother not because he was told to. Not because he was duped. He murdered his brother because his deeds were evil and Abel's were righteous. And he was jealous and angry and faithless. God lays a punishment on him. It's a difficult punishment. He curses him more than the ground. You remember the ground was cursed. Now Cain is cursed more than the ground. So much so that the ground will not bear fruit for him. He'll be a a restless man, a wanderer, a vagabond. And still this is less than Cain deserves. For what does Cain deserve? Death. Later on, an eye for an eye. A tooth for a tooth. Later in Genesis, God will say specifically, I will require man's blood from whosoever sheds man's blood. So, God is being merciful even in the midst of this. And Cain can't bear it. He says, this is too much. I know I killed Abel and he's dead and I know mom and dad are now grieving, but come on, really? I have to work hard and I can't live in one spot? Come on. You're so unfair. That's the cry of an unbelieving heart. Unfair. The believing heart in Christ says, you're so fair, Lord. Please be gracious. I deserve everything. Everything you are meeting out. But please be merciful. You see, he wants to excuse his sin and complain of the judgment. He's like the rich man who lived his whole life and then said, oh, it's so hot here. Much rather to be like the thief on the cross that said, we deserve everything we're getting. Jesus didn't. What what hope is there then in this story? It's a miserable story of death and sin and anger and sarcasm and punishment. The last thing that we see here is that there is hope in the better blood. You may remember that Hebrews also says that the blood of Abel speaks, but it doesn't speak as well as the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, because outside of Christ, man without faith is a man of rebellion whose focus is upon himself. He's held back from God by his pride, by his anger, his hate, his resentment. And if we are self-righteous, we will be the same. But there is hope for us in Christ because the man who is faithful is repentant. He sees repentance as a grace that God gives. He desires to serve God and know God and please God. Because he knows that if he doesn't, sin will work ruin in him. Abel's blood cries out for justice. But Jesus' blood cries out, mercy, grace. There is hope for you. Because you see, Cain was angry with God. Cain was dragged down by sin and his face fell. But do you remember the great priestly blessing? 
The Lord look upon you. The Lord lift up your countenance. And do what? Grant you peace. You see, peace can be found. A lifted up face can be found. Hope can be found in the blood of Jesus Christ that by faith unites us with the Lord. This is the hope of the world. You must embrace it today. You must be out of the way of Cain and in the way of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that you are indeed gracious in Christ. We ask, O Lord, that you would create in us, nourish faith in us, that you would remind us that without you, O Lord, we have no hope. But you seek us out. You will not leave us in our sin. Lord, I also ask here this morning that if there are any here who have not put their trust and hope in Christ, who are relying upon their own works, their own intelligence, their own being, that, Lord, you would use the story of Cain to convince them of the vanity of that. That real hope, real manliness, is found in following Christ. This we ask. In the name of our Lord and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.